about who Jesus is. But let's begin with verse 1. The Pharisees and Sadducees came up and testing Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. But he answered and said to them, when it, was, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning there will be a storm today for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the time? An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and a sign will not be given to it except the sign of Jonah. And he left them and went away. And the disciples came to the other sea, but they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began to discuss among themselves saying, he said that because we did not bring any bread. But Jesus aware of this said, you men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread. Do you not yet remember, do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets you picked up or the seven loaves and the 4,000 and how many large baskets full you picked up? How is it that you do not understand that I do not speak to you concerning bread but beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not say to them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, this is the first time that we have seen the Sadducees mentioned since Matthew chapter 3. They are only mentioned once in the Gospel of Mark and in the Gospel of Luke, but they're mentioned seven times in the Gospel of Matthew. All we know about them from Mark and Luke is that they did not believe in the resurrection. It's also mentioned in Acts 23 verse 8. And you remember Paul was almost torn in two by the Pharisees and Sadducees as he mentioned the resurrection of the dead. So, in the text, the Sadducees and Pharisees are acting together. Isn't it strange that those who have, those who have so little in common will unite against a common foe like Jesus? And Jesus says in the text, when they ask him for a sign from heaven, they asked him this before. He said, no sign will be given to you except the sign of Jonah, as he does in this particular case. In that case, he defined it. 
In Matthew 12 and verse 40, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. But here they come to Jesus and they are asking for a sign. Now think about the things they have witnessed in the Gospel of Matthew. Look back to Matthew chapter 9. In Matthew 9, Jesus in verse 32 had cast a demon out of a man. And when the demon was cast out, the crowds were amazed. The crowd said, nothing like this has been done in Israel. But in verse 34, the Pharisees were saying, he cast out demons by the ruler of demons. They had seen him cast out demons and they attributed that power to the devil. The Pharisees in chapter 12 and verse 22, the demon-possessed man was blind and mute, was brought to Jesus. Jesus healed him, so the mute spoke and the blind saw. The crowd say, is this not the son of David? The Pharisees say, he cast out demons by the ruler of demons. The point that I'm trying to make, the Pharisees have been witnesses of miracles before. They have been witnesses of amazing miracles that led some in the crowd to believe that Jesus was the promised son of David. But now in rejecting all the signs that Jesus has already done, they say, give us a sign. Give us a sign. And Jesus says to them, when it is evening and the sky is red, you say it will be good. But in the morning when the sky is red, you think that a storm approaches. Now, for those of you who are familiar with modern sayings like this, there is a modern saying that fits this. Red sky at morning, sailors take warning. Red sky at night is a sailor's delight. We have modern statements equivalent to what Jesus says in verses 2 and 3. Now, let me tell you something that helps me in understanding this particular text. In verses 2 and 3, when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. Now the word sky is used once in verse 2, it's used twice in verse 3. And it is the same Greek word translated heaven in verse 1. They wanted a sign from heaven or they wanted a sign from the sky. But they have no problems reading the heaven or reading the sky. They have no problem doing that. They do that every single morning and every single evening when they look at the sky and they look at the heavens and they see what they are telling them. But he says, while you are understanding that, you can't understand the signs of the times 
We use that phrase. When someone uses that phrase today, the signs of the times, they are generally talking of eschatology in things. They are usually talking about how these are the last days. But that's not how it is used here. And this is the only time this exact phrase is used in the Bible. The signs of the times. In this particular phrase, it is used that they did not see the things that were clear and evident about Jesus right before them. And the Bible says in verse 4, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. He is not speaking literally of the fact that they are an adulterous people. He is speaking spiritually, spiritually, like James said in James 4, in verse 4, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. We preach Christ crucified, Paul said, 1 Corinthians 1, 22 and 23, to the the Jews a stumbling block, to Greeks foolishness. For the Jews seek for a sign and the Greeks seek for wisdom. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. No sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah. I would suggest that that statement from Jonah may well have been remembered because I doubt the enemies of Jesus or the friends of Jesus understood exactly what he was talking about. And therefore it lodged in their memory. What is this phrase? No sign but the sign of Jonah. As we stated from Matthew 12, I think this is defined. Jesus gets into a boat with his disciples. As he gets into the boat with his disciples and goes to the other side, the text tells us that Jesus said, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Beware of the leaven. Well, their minds are preoccupied with the fact we didn't get any bread to take with us for the journey. And so because they are preoccupied with that, when they hear these words of Jesus, when they hear this reference, they think that Jesus is talking to them about the leaven of bread. They think that Jesus is warning them against taking bread from the Pharisees or the Sadducees. Jesus knew what they were thinking. And he said, you men of little faith. Now that is a phrase that is used uh, repeatedly in Matthew and um, Matthew uh, 6.30, Matthew 8.26, and Matthew 14, verse 31. We've encountered this phrase before. And in Matthew 6, it was much like its use in the context here. For the Gentiles seek after what to eat and what to drink and what to wear, but seek first God's kingdom 
and God's righteousness. The text tells us, you men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no prayer? Why is that the discussion? When I had five loaves before, how many did we feed? We fed 5,000. How many basketfuls did you pick up? And they said 12. And he uses the distinct words for basket that were used in 14 and 15. He said, when I had the seven loaves and the 4,000, doesn't mention exactly how many fish. But the seven loaves, he said, you took, you took up seven baskets full. How is it that you don't understand that I speak to you concerning bread? I'm not speaking to you concerning bread, but beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Well, in Matthew's account, it says, then they understood that he said, beware of the, le- the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, let's look over in Mark 8 just a moment. In Mark 8, the Sadducees are not mentioned here. Instead, Jesus says in verse 15, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. While Matthew's account ends with the disciples' understanding in 16 verse 12, I want you to notice first of all, that Jesus responds rebuking their lack of understanding in Mark. None of the Gospels make the disciples look good. Their failures, their misunderstandings are recorded in all of them. But Mark is the strongest in recording the disciples' failure. In verse 18... Why do you discuss the fact, this verse 17, Mark 8, 17. Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear and do not remember? Remember, Jesus spoke of those who heard the parables and who refused to listen to the parables and reflect upon the parables in the same way. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. The disciples are in danger of falling into the same problem that the crowd fell into. That they are seeing these things and hearing these things but not reflecting on these things. To ask, what do they teach us about him? What do they teach us about who he is and what he can do? Now, a few points on the text. One thing that particularly stands out is Jesus is emphasizing the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. He says, avoid it in verse 6. 
Avoid the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Watch out. Beware, he says. What was the bottom line problem of these words? It is also interesting to me that these groups would have disagreed about many things. They would have disagreed violently among themselves about the resurrection from the dead. They would have disagreed about the binding of oral traditions that we talked about in Matthew 15. They would have disagreed about all of these things. But Jesus mentions the yeast or leaven. He mentions that singular, it's a definite article. And it may be that in some way there's a combined mistake of these groups that Jesus is warning about. By the way, the idea of leaven, which I didn't explain as thoroughly as I should have earlier, remember when they removed all the leaven from their house at the Feast of Unleavened Bread in, in Exodus chapter 12, and leaven there becomes a picture of how sin can grow and spread. And in 1 Corinthians 5, when Paul is warning the church at Corinth about the man who has committed adultery, among them. He is emphasizing that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. It can spread and it can do great damage. Now, what was the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees in this context? They acted like they come here saying we just don't have enough evidence. We don't have enough evidence. We don't have enough to convince us. They act as if they're willing to be convinced. Give us a sign from heaven. They just didn't know whether Jesus was really from heaven or not. Now, I know the Canaanite woman that we just described in a sermon recently in Matthew 15, verse 22. This Canaanite woman who maybe had never seen a miracle of Jesus specifically, she had heard enough that she could call him the son of David. But these religious leaders, they just haven't seen that much. They just, they need more evidence before they're going to believe. I'll tell you someone else, another group, that cried out to Jesus as son of David in the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew 9 verse 27... And Jesus went on from there. Two blind men followed him, crying out, Have mercy on us, son of David. Matthew 9, verse 27. In Matthew 20, in Matthew 20, in verse 30, two blind men sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And what I'm trying to illustrate 
on both sides of this event, before it and after it, we have records of blind men, blind men who could see enough to say that Jesus was the son of David. We find a Gentile woman, a Canaanite woman, who has enough evidence that she knows Jesus is the son of David. She knows he's the Jewish Messiah. But when it comes to the Pharisees and Sadducees, they just haven't seen enough. But Jesus said it's interesting that you can look up in the sky and tell how the weather is going to be when the sky is red at morning or the sky is red at evening. You can tell what kind of night that's going to bring or what kind of day that's going to bring. But you can't see these signs inside. These signs now. <clears throat> Is there enough evidence about Jesus to convict someone that's really looking? Is there enough? Now I want to appeal to you. If you are in this audience today and you are secretly questioning the existence of God, the existence or the fact that Jesus is the promised Savior, that He's who He claimed to be, or you're questioning whether the Bible's the Word of God. If you're questioning, there are answers to those questions. And those questions are big enough, and those questions are important enough that everything else is put on the back burner Until you've answered those questions. Because those questions can shape the foundation of our life. There is plenty of evidence there. Look at it. Examine it. And if you would like help examining it. I know I would and I know many other people here. Who would be glad to seek to help. But I want to tell you, what you know is an evidence of who you are. What you know is an evidence of your priorities as far as what you think it is essential and needful to know. And is there anything more needful to know than those questions that I ask? John 3 verses 1 and 2. The reason I mention this verse is here is a Pharisee who found enough evidence to believe. In John 3 verses 1 and 2. 
There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. For no one can do these signs that you do. He's he's seen and heard of the signs of Jesus. And he said, there's no way that you could do these things unless God is with you. They could tell the weather, but they couldn't tell that Jesus was the Messiah. And again, if you're in that situation, everything else can be put on the back burner until you have answered those questions and adjusted your life accordingly. Now, our craft IT team was not able to switch points two and three, but let's deal with them in reverse order. Uh, In reverse order, the word that says they came to Jesus testing Him or tempting Him, If you look up those Old Testament passages, all of them, even the ones from Psalms, Psalm 78, 56, Psalm 106, 14, all of these passages deal with the wilderness experience of Israel. And they deal with how Israel in the wilderness tempted Jesus, or tempted God. They tempt God and they complain there is no water to drink in Exodus 17. And and God gives them water flowing out of the rock in that particular passage. Uh, The Bible tells us uh, in all these passages it talks about Israel tempting God up to Hebrews. Hebrews 3, 9 is a New Testament reference that refers to this same period. Okay. This is the way to sum up what I just said. When the Pharisees and Sadducees come to Jesus tempting him or testing him, the text tells us that this identifies Israel. This identifies these Israelites, these Pharisees, these Sadducees with the worst segments of Israel's history. The segments where they were unbelieving and rebellious and disobedient. This is identifying these Sadducees with those worst elements and worst people in Israel's history. But there's something worse than that. In Matthew 4 and verse 3. The same word is used. It said the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. In verse 6, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. The point I'm trying to make is Satan is also described in Matthew 1, 3, Matthew 4, 1, and Matthew 4, 3 as tempting Jesus. And in all these cases, sometimes the word is not specifically used, but in Matthew 4, verse 1, and in Matthew 4, verse 3, the same word is used of Satan tempting Jesus as is used of the Pharisees 
The Sadducees tested Jesus. It's hard to know what is the best logical order in which he said these things. But I use verse 3 here to make the point in verse 2 to drive this home. if God is accountable to us instead of understanding that we're accountable to Him. And the Pharisees and Sadducees had done that repeatedly. When they came out to the wilderness to hear the preaching of John, who is specifically said to be a prophet who speaks the word of God, and they're coming out to check him out. They need to be coming out in repentance. In Matthew 15, in verses 1 and 2, when a group of Pharisees from Jerusalem came up to listen to Jesus and they asked, why do your disciples transgress the traditions of elders? Why do they do it? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. In this particular passage, they're acting like Jesus is on The one that has opened the eyes of the blind the one that has cleansed lepers and calls the lame to walk, the one who has raised the dead, they are putting him on trial and asking him for a sign. I can't imagine. I can't imagine what it was like to experience the things that Job experienced. In the book of John. I can't imagine. He loses all of his wealth and then loses his seven sons and his three daughters. Satan says, Oh, skin for skin. A man will not deny you as long as you give him life, as long as you don't touch him. You put, let me put forth my hand on him and he will curse you to your face. And Job is struck with boils from the top of his head to the sole of his feet. Job deals with great physical pain. He is dealing with emotional pain with all he's lost. And he is dealing with social stigma. Because it is believed that because he's experienced all these profound losses that he has sinned, some horrible sin. He loses all of his standing in the community as he describes in Job 29 and Job 30. And Job says, Lord, if you would come and you would appear before me, I would fill my mouth with arguments. In Job 23. God does come. And when God comes, Job cannot speak. 
nor does Jesus when they ask him for a sign. When we say, Lord, unless you heal this person, unless you do this, unless you do that, I'm not going to believe. Our total approach to God is wrong when we do that. We come before Him acknowledging who He is. And how we are utterly, totally, completely dependent upon Him for every breath, for life and breath and all things, as Acts 17 says. We are totally dependent upon Him. The Pharisees and Sadducees were wrong. Because they wanted to put Jesus on trial to make Jesus meet their demands. We will never walk with God unless we realize that we humble ourselves before Him, that we are servant, that He is God. Don't tell God you won't believe unless such and such happens. Submit, surrender, and serve. May the Lord help us. Let us pray. O Lord our God, you are awesome and mighty. And you reveal yourself in awesome ways. Help us, O Lord, to humble ourselves before you, realizing that you are everything and that we are weak. Let us not be guilty of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Help us to humble ourselves before you, surrendering to you on your terms. We need your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Among the other passages that I meant to include and did not, see Luke 12, 1, touches upon beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy in that particular passage. A word that was used strongly in Matthew and Matthew 6.
surrendering to Him. Not my will, but your will be done. Are you willing to surrender to Him? If you believe that Jesus died and rose again, if you're willing to turn from your sins in repentance and be baptized for remission of sin, we'll be glad to assist you as we say.